0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Zeba Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm excited to talk to Dr. Rahul Rao about his new book, Out of Time, The Queer Politics of Postcoloniality, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Out of Time seeks to understand encounters and entanglements across geopolitical divides, that produce and contest contemporary queer phobias. It places the infamous 2009 to 2014 anti-homosexuality legislation in Uganda in conversation with developments in India and Britain, three locations connected by the experience of British imperialism and its afterlives. Intervening in a queer theoretical literature on temporality, Rao argues that time and space matter differently in the queer politics of post-colonial countries. By employing an intersectional analysis and drawing on a range of sources, he offers an original interpretation of why queerness mutates to become a metonym for categories such as nationality, religiosity, race, class, and caste. Importantly, this book does not offer a simple colonial origin story of anti-queer animus, but finds responsibility for the ongoing oppression in both colonial and post-colonial regimes. Dr. Rao is reader in political theory at SOA's University of London. He is also the author of Out of Third World Protests, Between Home and the World, published in 2010 by Oxford University Press. He's a member of the Radical Philosophy Collective and blogs at the Disorder of Things. And he's currently writing a book about the politics of statues. Rahul, greetings from Salvador, Brazil, and welcome to New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies.
1: Thank you so much, Isabel, for that introduction and for inviting me to the podcast.
0: So to get us started, um, I'd like you to tell us how did this book come about, or as I like to say it, your book's origin story.
1: Yeah, um, I think the book probably had multiple origins. Um, I grew up in India, where I lived till the age of twenty-three. And I, you know, grew up as a queer person in India, very aware of the criminalization of homosexuality by the Indian Penal Code and the kind of effects this had on everyday queer life, um, in India. Um, and so I'd followed the struggle against that law, section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, since I was, uh, in university at the National Law School of India, University, Bangalore. Uh, It was a university where many of my um, college mates were quite involved in this legal campaign and struggle against this provision. So I'd say from my early 20s, I was quite attuned to struggles around the anti-sodomy law in India, and so it was a small step from there to look at what was happening elsewhere. I didn't begin working on this academically till around the end of my first book. Uh, end of writing my first book, which was based on my PhD, uh, which I worked on between 2001 and 10. And so just as I finished that project, uh, I became aware of the anti-homosexuality bill, as it then was, which had been introduced in the Ugandan parliament in 2009 uh, and was finally passed into law in 2014. This uh, act attracted worldwide attention and notoriety almost immediately, uh, I think for two reasons. First, because it uh, introduced or proposed incredibly draconian punishments, including the death penalty in the first draft of the bill for certain offences, offences against the order of nature, unnatural uh, sexual offences as it described them. Uh, And second, because the bill was said to have been passed at the behest of transnationally organized, uh, mostly U.S.-based evangelical Christian activists who were said to have lobbied Ugandan priests and politicians and encouraged them to pass this bill as a way of uh, stemming the spread of what they described as anti-family and anti-Christian and anti-Ugandan un-African values. So, from the very outset, this was an international story. It, it seemed international on both sides, so to speak, of this conflict. Uh, both the queer phobes and the queer activists seemed to be transnationally organized, with Uganda becoming a kind of battlefield between these two global fronts. So, this, I would say, maybe uh, describes some of the origin stories of how I got to thinking about this particular law. And its global implications.
0: Um, But I think it's always useful to begin a discussion of a book that deals with gender and sexuality dissidents by talking about a little bit about terminology. Uh, How do you balance this importance of finding and using indigenous local terms? with the need to communicate across borders. Uh, for instance, how did you decide on which incarnation of the ever-changing acronym, right, LGBT, LGBTQ, YA+, to use here? And how are you defining and using the term queer? Do you think queer is a useful term to use in global post-colonial contexts, or is it already imposing a particular epistemology? Uh, as you explain very well here, certain terms that are sometimes used and adopted without necessarily reflecting lived realities?
1: That's a great question, Isabel. It's a perennial question because I think all of us working on gender and sexuality and the geographies of gender and sexuality have to grapple with this question. Um, I suppose I one entry point for me was an Anglo-American literature on queer theory. And I, I very firmly situate this in, in Anglo-America or the North Atlantic world. Um, because I think it's important to provincialize and locate and um, contextualize this work. This is the work that will be familiar to many readers as the kind of canon of queer theory, right? Foucault, Butler, Sedgwick, etc. Um, already in this literature, there is a very well-known tension between a liberal identity politics that tends to speak in terms of the acronym and ever proliferating acronym LGBT, where each of the letters signifies a particular identity category. So between that and a kind of queer deconstruction of identity itself, where queer I think is used somewhat inconsistently as both an umbrella term for a number of different identity categories, as well as a critique of identity itself. Um, It was originally intended in the latter sense as a critique of identity categories, But over time, it seems to have morphed into an identity in its own right, as, for example, when people identify as queer, or when they use it as an umbrella term for queer. So the meaning of queer has itself morphed, uh, and perhaps there are situations and contexts in which it is no longer useful, and I think we should be prepared to jettison it when, when it's no longer useful. This is particularly important, I think, when we think in terms of other geographies, particularly in the Global South. And I've tried to be attentive in the book to the languages, terminologies, and vocabularies that uh, people in Uganda, India, and elsewhere deploy to describe non-normative gender and sexuality. Now, those terms are not unproblematic either. So when I think uh, with Ugandan queer activists and writers, the term that uh, has been invented in Uganda to describe um, gender and sexual non-normativity, this is a term that also functions in this way as a kind of umbrella category, is kuchu. But what's very interesting about the use of the term kuchu is that it does not enjoy um, unanimous approval and take-up in the Ugandan context. Uh, Stella Nyanzi, one of the earliest uh, ethnographers of the Ugandan Kuchu movement, noted in her early work that uh, not everybody was uh, interested in or prepared to identify in terms of this category. For some people, she says, the term connoted a kind of in-your-face radical activism that they did not um, uh, embody. And um, and so some people preferred to identify in Uganda in in in, in the terms of the LGBT acronym um, or, or some variation thereof. What was really interesting to me about Nyanzi's observation of the tensions produced by the term kuchu was that in many ways these tensions were analogous to the tensions produced by queer. And what that taught me, I think, was that none of these signs were unimpeachable. None of them were perfectly all-encompassing categories for the worlds that they purported to describe. And so rather than trying to come up with a perfect term, I became more interested in the function that they were playing. What role do these terms as placeholders uh, perform? So is the, are these terms trying to capture what we might more cumbersomely call gender and sexual non-normativity? But then there's also a debate in queer theory about whether the queer always describes the non-normative. So Robin Wiegman and Elizabeth Wilson have recently suggested that queer theory is too restrictive in its understanding of norms by always focusing on the non-normative. And even Judith Butler has um, spoken of the ways in which some norms allow people to live livable lives, whereas others uh, thwart their ability to do so. And so our attitude towards norms may not always be the same. So I don't pretend to have resolved any of these contradictions, but these are some of the starting points, some of the definitional conundrums with which uh, I begin the book. For the most part, I use terms and categories that the people I'm talking to uh, and working with use for themselves, um, I've tried to be faithful to those self-understandings.
0: Yes, and, and that discussion, I think, will be very useful to anybody who is trying to grapple with the same issues. So thanks for that. <laughs> but let's use your book's title to talk about temporalities. Uh, as you note, time is central to the politics of imperialism and anti-imperialism. So what does it mean to be out of time, and how can this idea contain both the possibilities of marginalization and liberation?
1: So a starting point for me, let me first say that I didn't think I was writing a book about time till about the middle of the project. So the idea that this was a book interested in temporality dawned on me in a kind of belated fashion, right? There's there's a kind of temporality to writing the book itself that I think is important to acknowledge. But when I did get interested in time, perhaps an obvious starting point or reference point was Johannes Fabian's Time and the Other, which defines imperialism in a temporal sense as the denial of coevalness, the denial that other parts of the world are situated in the same time. But then um, Fabian makes a really interesting distinction right at the start of the book between a denial of coevalness that is being denied placement in the same time by someone else and the refusal of coevalness which is a very different thing this is refusing to place oneself in the same time as the other. The first he says might be a condition of domination the second he suggests might be an act of liberation and this made me think about queer theory itself as as playing a similarly ambivalent role Queer theory if we follow Heather love, is interested in transforming the material of our abjection into the grounds of a new agency and liberation. And that leads us, I think, to the intriguing possibility that it might be possible to transmute or transform one's placement out of time into a refusal to be in and off that time. Now, this kind of movement carries some risks, right? We, can, we risk romanticizing exclusion. But I think what I'm trying to do is to suggest that those who have been excluded might do something with that exclusion that transforms it into, into a refusal of inclusion. And this is what a, a lot of queer theory pushes us to think about and perhaps even to do and to perform. Uh, to resist our inclusion within liberal modernity because the structures of that modernity are themselves uh, so oppressive. This is the well known critique of homo normativity by Lisa Dugan or of homo nationalism by Jasbir Puar. And so the temporal stakes of the book, I think, are very closely linked with some of these key currents in queer critique uh, and queer theory.
0: Yes, and this dimension of time that you bring is also, I I think I'm starting to repeat myself to say how useful uh, uh, some of the the discussions in this book uh, were, because they definitely were for me. So, but um, you sort of started introducing uh, the the issue with the AHB and AHA, uh, uh, the anti-homosexual bill and anti-homosexual act in Uganda. And you mentioned the role of international players. I would like you to elaborate on that a little bit more and explain how can the claims that both homosexuality and homophobia are Western imports coexist in this story?
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned a moment ago, the um, some of the most authoritative accounts of how this bill and later act came to be emphasized the lobbying efforts of uh, U.S.-based transnationally organized evangelical Christians who were encouraging, lobbying Ugandan priests and politicians to pass this bill. The reason why they were interested in doing this has been told very well by scholars such as Kapya Kaoma and Miranda Hassett. And they, they tell us a story in which conservatives within mainline Christian denominations in the West beginning to feel that they were losing the battle in various culture wars around issues such as the ordination of women as bishops or the blessing of same-sex unions. So because conservatives feel that they're losing these battles on their home ground in the US and Europe, uh, they are seeking to build global alliances with what they think to be more conservative parts of their denominations in other parts of the world, principally in the global south in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, so that in the global norm-setting fora of these denominations, they can wield a demographic majority and block uh, liberal attempts to uh, reform the norms and understandings of these particular denominations. Hence the interest in reaching out to partners in sub-Saharan Africa, in countries like Uganda, Kenya, Nigeria, Rwanda and elsewhere um, around these sorts of issues. So this critique, I think, is very important, but it does beg questions about the motivations, the agency of the Ugandan actors in this drama. I began to worry, reading some of these critiques, that the entire crisis, if we can use that word, in Uganda was being portrayed as a struggle or a face-off primarily between Western actors, Western LGBT activists facing off against Western conservatives uh, in a a different geographical space. And I wanted to think about the agency of the Ugandan priests and politicians who had been so key in, in actually bringing this bill to fruition. What were their motivations? What were their intentions? How could we tell a story that did justice to their agency without, and this is really important, without lapsing into tired, stereotypical, orientalist, nationalist stories of uh, homophobia as being rife in Africa, as being rife in Uganda, as being a kind of timeless, uh, deep-rooted, irre- irremediable affect that had always marked the African continent. So I was sort of tacking between two problematic narratives – one in which Africa was portrayed as inherently homophobic, very implausible because homophobia as a political affect is actually of quite recent provenance in many of these countries. And the other kind of narrative, intended as a critique of the first, in which this was an entirely uh, American import, an American story. And so this led me to think about um, some discursive frames that I would hear very often in the course of my research. One was the claim by conservatives in many parts of the Global South, certainly in India and Uganda, that homosexuality is Western. Uh, And the retort by queer activists that actually it wasn't homosexuality that was Western, it was homophobia, as expressed in the form of colonial penal codes, but also more recently laws like the Anti-Homosexuality Act. These pieces of legislation, they said, demonstrate that it is homophobia that that is Western. I argue in the book that both these claims are have some truth to them, but are also evasive in um, in obscuring some very important features of this state of affairs. So the claim that homosexuality is Western, if one is scrupulously Foucauldian, of course this is true. Foucault in the History of Sexuality, Volume One, tells us that um, sexuality is an aspect of identity whether that is heterosexuality or homosexuality, is born in particular discourses in Europe in the 19th century. And Foucauldian scholars have then told us a great deal about how these ways of thinking about sexuality as an aspect of identity uh, begin to be expressed in other parts of the world, particularly in the Global South, as a result of um, a host of vectors that carry these ways of thinking and identifying to other parts of the world. And those vectors are global capitalism itself, the media, HIV, AIDS, funding, human rights, activism. Different scholars emphasize different conveyors of these ideas and identities. So, yes, homosexuality is Western. But when conservatives in the global South say homosexuality is Western, it's not clear to me whether they're referring to identity or to same-sex behavior which is not what Foucault was talking about. Foucault would not have denied, and no Foucauldian I know denies, that same-sex behavior, desire, is, is is in any way limited to or originates in the 19th century West. So I think conservatives in the global South are usefully ambiguous about whether they're talking about behavior or identity. The, con- the counterclaim homophobia is Western. You could argue is true, because it's homophobia as an affect Uh, presupposes something called homosexuality uh, as its counterpart, then it can only arise in response to uh, or in counterpoint with homosexuality as a form of identification. But that, I think, uh, obscures or sort of um, prevents us from asking questions about indigenous uh, antipathies towards non-normative sex and gender that might have predated the advent of sexuality or homosexuality. And if we're not curious, if we don't ask questions about indigenous pre-colonial forms of intolerance for the non-normative, then I think we risk romanticizing the pre-colonial as some kind of uniquely tolerant space um, which is vitiated by the entry of colonialism. Uh, This is a kind of romantic post-colonialism that I don't have much patience for. Um, And I'm trying to, I think, articulate a vision for post-colonial theory that can ask these difficult questions about the pre-colonial, and that is not afraid of wading into this very messy task of apportioning responsibility between the colonial and the post-colonial state. I'll just say one more quite obvious thing when it comes to these sorts of laws, particularly the colonial-originated penal codes, yes, they are colonial in their origin, but they persist in many post-colonial states for several decades after the end of colonialism. And this is because they have often been embraced and resignified by the post-colonial state, infused with new meaning um, in, in ways that I think are important to acknowledge and understand if we are to appreciate why they have had such long afterlives after the end of colonialism.
0: Yes. And that brings me to uh, a section of your book that, as a historian, I was really uh, attracted to and interested in. It is your discussion of the archives. And you make your critique of this instrumentalization of the archives for activist purposes. And there was a quote that particularly resonated with me that I would like to share here. You say that To approach the archive in this way is to know in advance what we expect to find in it. It's to risk the temptation of filling its blanks by ventriloquizing its inaudible subalterns. And I know you're talking here more specifically about uh, LGBTQIA issues, but I think we can use uh, this uh, to think about other um, struggles and activisms. So I ask, how do you think, and it's this something you actually uh, question in, in the book, how can we conciliate queer liberation or other activism with scrupulous scholarship?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a question that fascinated me in, in many parts of the book.
0: In offering
1: this kind of critique of the instrumentalization of the archive, I was really influenced by Anjali Arundekar's book, For the Record. This is really her critique of the way in which the archive tends to be uh, instrumentalized by activists. It's portrayed as if it contains the kind of secret key to our liberation. If only we can open this treasure chest of history and pull out some unimpeachable evidence of you know, pre-colonial same-sex desire, we could wield that as a kind of trump card um, in court or in the public sphere to say, we've been queer before the advent of Western colonialism and certainly this is how the archive has been used in litigation in political argument and one can understand why it's used in that way it's tactically very useful as a way of responding to the the conservative claim that uh, same sex desire behavior identity whatever is is um, is an uh, is an import from the west so one can understand the tactical use of these things but to do this is also um, problematic for many reasons. It's, it's anachronistic because many of these moments of pre-colonial same-sex desire that we point to do not exemplify a politics of identity at all in the way that we think about sexuality today. It presumes to, find, it presumes to know what there is in the archive before we've even found it. Uh, and, and this is, in a sense, uh, Spivak's critique of the way in which some subaltern studies proceeds, in which the theorist projects onto the silent or the absent or the non-speaking subaltern the particular investments that they have and that they wish this silent subaltern to kind of confirm. Um, so there's that problem as well. At the same time, I, I wanted to honour the impulse to turn towards the past for some kind of uh, reparation of the, the, the ruptures, the forms of alienation uh, that conservative discourses introduce when they deny the possibility of being otherwise in the post-colonial nation state. And so the question became, you know, can we be both scrupulously historical while also honoring that backward glance in so much of queer scholarship and life, that desire for ancestors, that desire for belonging, really. And so I I began to think about memory rather than history as as a possible way to do this. And I'm not sure if I've been entirely successful, but um, the the particular instance in which uh, I became interested here was the story of the the last pre-colonial ruler of the Kingdom of Buganda, which is the largest of the pre-colonial kingdoms that were merged to form uh, the present-day state of Uganda. Um, The the king's name is Mwanga. His title was Kabaka, which means king. Kabaka Mwanga is a very interesting figure. Neville Hoard has written about him. Many people have written about this story, um, including in, in queer scholarship. He's an interesting figure because he's believed to have had sex. We're not sure what exactly he did, but the written sources that we have, mostly left behind by Western Christian missionaries, tell us that he had um, sex with uh, men in his court. Until Christianity arrived, converted some of these men to the new religion, taught them that this was a sin, at which point they refused the king his advances. Uh, he has them put to death in a very public execution in 1886, The Catholic Church begins a campaign to canonize these early martyrs to Christianity. And in the 1960s, the 23 Catholics who were killed in this execution were declared saints by the then Pope. They're today referred to as the Uganda martyrs. So what's really interesting to me about this story is that as a result of the Catholic Church's efforts, this story that purports to pivot around an instance of same-sex desire is very well remembered. It's very intensively memorialized in Uganda and Africa, and indeed the entire Catholic world. There is a, you know, the 3rd of June is celebrated every year as Uganda Martyrs Day. There are a number of shrines to the martyrs around Kampala, the capital city, um, particularly at Namugongo, which is the site of the executions. Almost a million pilgrims, sometimes even more than that, gather every year on this day to commemorate and venerate and worship um, the, the martyrs. So unlike some of the kind of stories of same-sex desire which are buried in the archive and need to be excavated and then used, I was interested in you know the, the stories that circulate in everyday public memory. And the story of the Uganda martyrs is one of these things. Anyone in Uganda who's had some contact with the church or with uh, the teaching of history, and you know, the, Uganda is an overwhelmingly Christian country, so most people have, have some version of the story, um, is able to offer an account of what they think happened in, in, in these events. I, I also theoretically began to wonder whether memory was politically more consequential than history. Uh, using Michel Roth through your starting point for for the distinction between these two things. He says, history is the term we sometimes use to describe what actually happened, whereas memory is the term we use to describe what people think happened. I I began to wonder whether memory was politically more consequential than history. And so what people in Uganda think happened in this moment became a, a, a source of interest and is very much the subject of chapter three of the book, And I wanted to think with these, with the range of memories that people have about this moment and the ways in which that memory might shape contemporary attitudes towards gender and sexuality as a way of understanding both queer phobia as it circulates in the Ugandan public sphere, but also whether there might be possibilities for sexual dissidence. And those possibilities for sexual dissidence don't rely on thinking of Moanga as gay, they might actually draw something quite different from the story in a way that nonetheless legitimizes the existence of same-sex desire in that place, in another time, Um, in a way that the more anachronistic, you know, attempts to draw a direct line between manga as a gay king and putting gay in inverted commas here and uh, kuchus in the present uh, might do.
0: Um. Uh, writing about a completely different subject, but I also have a, a chapter that I'm dealing with history and memory. So I I really love that, that section in your book. We actually have something in common. I have that same uh, Pierre Nora quote in my forthcoming book.
1: Uh-huh. Okay.
0: <laughs> but anyways.
1: But maybe I could say a little bit more about that, actually, because, you know, Pierre, Pierre Nora has a quite sharp distinction between history and memory.
0: And actually,
1: I found, at least my reading of Nora, um, I I think Michel Rolf Truyo complicates that distinction. So, you know, he starts by saying, here's how colloquially we think of the difference. We think history is what actually happened, memory is what people think happened. But actually, there is no way of accessing what actually happened except through somebody's account of what they think happened. Yes. Um, so one of my friends joked and said, you know, maybe... Maybe uh, history is just memory with an army. And I think there's something to that, right? History is simply a more hegemonic version of memory. But at the same time, Truyo says, we might want to insist on a distinction between the two. We might not want everything to be about memory. And, and I, I feel this impulse, you know, in our own time, in, in a kind of post-truth world in which we live, this impulse to insist that, some narrative is true or truer than another. I find it very hard to resist that. So I I do want to insist on the possibility of telling more authoritative stories about what happened in the past uh, without in any way denying the possibility that those stories might be remembered in many different ways by different groups of people, depending on their investments, depending on why they choose to, to remember that moment, what they want to do with it politically in the present. And so that's really what I'm trying to attend to when I think about the story of Moanga.
0: Yes. And and I did use uh, Trio to complicate that, but now I'm using you as well. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, could you talk a bit about something that you discussed here, the idea of the cost of costing queer phobia, right? And, ha- and uh, this is something related to... Homo capitalism, which I would uh, ask you to briefly define in case anyone listening is not familiar with the term. So, um, talk about the cost of que- causing queerphobia and how can homo capitalism be resisted?
1: Those are big questions, and I'm, I'm <laughs> yes. not sure I can do justice to all of them, but I would say the mm-hmm. impetus for thinking about this came from one of the first reactions to the Uganda Anti-Homosexuality Act in February 2014, as soon as it was passed, came from the World Bank, which announced that it was delaying a $90 million loan that was meant to have funded maternal health projects in Uganda. Uh, Eventually, that money never went to Uganda. So what we were seeing was one of the first instances, I think, of a kind of gay conditionality. Where a country, a borrowing country in the global south, was being punished through capital withdrawal for its attitudes towards um, LGBT rights. Around the same time, the bank began uh, pioneering a series of studies that purported to show how, if a country recognized LGBT rights, its economy would grow by X percent. And these studies were conducted by Lee Badgett and a host of collaborators many of whom are now based at the Williams Institute in California. So the bank was simultaneously wielding a stick, but also offering states a carrot, right? If you recognize LGBT rights, your economy will grow. If you don't, we will make sure that your economy shrinks or or it will shrink. I thought this was really interesting because it seemed to me to be a new strategy whereby global queer liberalism was attempting to propagate LGBT rights, a different strategy from the one that Jasbir Puar had identified and named as homonationalism in her um, incredibly influential 2007 book, Terrorist Assemblages. Different because homonationalism as uh, a discursive strategy, and it's much more than that, she describes it as an assemblage, relies on the frames of civilization and barbarism, much like older forms of Orientalism, as the strategy through which to persuade the recalcitrant to come to the side of civilization. And in that sense, it seemed to be a a strategy that relied much more on coercion, as compared with homo-capitalism, which seemed to rely much more on consent. A different way of framing this, I think, is that whereas homo-nationalism threatens states that don't recognize LGBT rights with the label of barbarian, homo-capitalism threatens them with the prospect of being poor. And I thought, actually, that it was possible, and we were seeing instances of states that had no interest in being recognized as civilized within the terms of homo-nationalism. It was possible to resist the discourse of homo-nationalism. Many states have been doing this, Uh, perhaps most prominently Russia, which champions an alternative vision of what it calls traditional values. And many states have grouped together under this banner of traditional values in the UN and other global norm setting fora. So while states were pushing back against homo nationalism, it seemed much harder for them to push back against homo capitalism unless one resists capitalism itself, which we see very little evidence of at the state level in the world today, with some very um, few exceptions in this regard it seemed to me that whereas homo nationalism was a strategy of dominance homo capitalism was a strategy of hegemony because it had this greater element of persuasion and consent and buying so this is what i mean broadly by by the term homo capitalism and these were the sort of observations i was making that led me to conceptualize the term and to try and distinguish it from uh, homo nationalism, even while noting its overlaps with homo nationalism in some ways. How do we resist homocapitalism? capitalism? I think this is inseparable from the broader question of how we resist capitalism or the extent to which it is possible to do so within world politics as it is currently constituted. Um, I don't have any answers to that question, but I do think that when LGBT activists begin to play this game of homo capitalism, when they see this as a way of getting the work they want done accomplished, then they're basically, they're basically abdicating uh, any, any investment in anti-capitalist politics. So once again, we go back to the split between a liberal LGBT politics and, and a kind of radical anti-capitalist queer politics. And I think those LGBT activists and scholars who are invested in the discourse and strategies of homo-capitalism have basically made a choice to see capitalism as a vehicle for their own upward mobility, to see joining the market, to see the market as as giving queer people a form of citizenship that perhaps the state has denied them. They're striking a bargain with the market and its freedoms and capitalism and, in a sense, uh, denying the possibility that queers might have an investment in anti-capitalism. Um, and that's, I think, a very sobering moment for us as queer activists and scholars where we're confronted with this, this big and, you know, um, age old persistent question of whether we think of capitalism as a vehicle for, for, our liberation or an obstacle to it. And, and if so, you know, what is our, what is our stance going to be vis a vis
0: that, that is, is an, another uh, discussion that we could uh, have like a whole podcast on, uh, episode yeah. on. <laughs> so. But thank you for uh, tackling it. Uh, so let's just move a, a bit in terms of ge- uh, geography here. Um, chapter six looks at trans activists' demands for uh, backwards class status in India. So, could you tell us uh, what does the term backwardness mean in an Indian political context, and what is the function of the concept of backwardness being embraced by the trans movement in India?
1: Yeah, so this is a a, um, a really important question to think about contextually because the term backward, you know, viewed in its in 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 abstraction can come across as quite offensive and problematic, and it is, right? It is it is a kind of relegation to a state of primitiveness. That is not the sense in which um, I use the term in Chapter 6. Um, my usage of the term is very firmly located in an Indian legal and political and constitutional lexicon in which backwardness is the term that is used to describe caste disadvantage, Um, I try and tell the story of how the term backward came to be used to describe uh, subordinate caste status. And this takes us into some of the legal and constitutional history of, um, you know, the, the language that the framers of the Indian constitution adopted. They seem to have fastened on the word backward because, in their view, caste disadvantage. Was something to be remedied so that those who were in some way behind would catch up with and become uh, the same as those who were ahead. So backwardness was seen as um, a state that could be remedied through a, a, a logic, a kind of liberal logic of catch up. This is not the term that subordinate caste formations themselves used, the term that they use is Dalit. Uh, the former untouchable groups describe themselves as Dalit, and the meaning of that term is broken people. So this is a, a term that is used to describe a kind of sociological state of oppression, but that has been resignified and uh, appropriated and uh, transformed into a kind of militant term uh, that is now the preferred term of identification. So the Indian constitution institutes a a scheme of affirmative action for groups that are recognized as backward. It provides for reservation or affirmative action in um, matters of um, representation in political bodies, but also in public education. One of the reasons for this very progressive constitutional scheme is that the chairperson of the drafting committee of the Indian constitution was himself uh, Dalit the great Dalit visionary leader, B.R. Ambedkar, who is uh, remembered today as both the leading figure in Dalit history, but also as the architect of the Indian constitution. So his efforts are a key reason why the Indian constitution looks the way it does in this respect. But the recognition of, or, or the tying of affirmative action to backward class status has generated demands from many sections of Indian society for recognition of backward class status. So many social groups in India um, approach the state uh, for recognition and categorization as backward in order to avail of those affirmative action provisions. And one of the latest of such groups has been the trans community in India, which in 2013 approached the Supreme Court, for recognition of uh, their own statuses backward in order to avail of these affirmative action provisions. Now, I think this is a really interesting move, because this is a demand not simply for a kind of liberal recognition. It's not just what Nancy Fraser might call recognition politics. It's also very much about redistribution, because affirmative action is a way of availing of material welfare schemes. It's a way of making a call on the resources of the state and the society more generally in order to remedy a historical disadvantage. So there's, there, there, there is a very powerful, I would say quite radical redistributive element to this kind of demand. And I think it should also be understood, and this is the argument I try and make in uh, chapter six, as not just a kind of pragmatic gesture on the part of trans communities to adopt a strategy that has, that is seen to have worked to some extent for subordinate caste communities, although their subordination remains very real today. So it's not just a kind of analogy to subordinate caste and Dalit politics. For some trans activists, and I emphasize the word some, because trans activism in India is a very varied space populated by many different currents, some of which are quite conservative and others much more radical. But for the more radical of these trans voices, The analogy with subordinate caste status is much more than an analogy. It's also seen as a way of breaking caste. So I'm uh, very moved by the writing of uh, G. Iman Semmelar, a trans activist who talks about the ways in which trans becoming leads to a loss of caste respectability. But rather than lamenting this loss of caste position and caste respectability, he actually welcomes this as an opportunity to break caste, uh, to to dismantle, um, you know, the, the the caste system, to annihilate caste. In the words of Ambedkar's most famous essay, this to me is a direct contrast with the strategy of homo capitalism, which I talked about a moment earlier. Homo capitalism we might see as a strategy of upward mobility where LGBT activists seek to ascend the ladder of capitalist society by portraying themselves as model capitalist subjects and promising to contribute to the economy and growth and all of the things that capitalism holds dear. The strategy that trans activists, that the particular trans activists I'm writing about in this chapter have adopted is the complete opposite. Because rather than seeking to ascend a social ladder, they're making common cause with, or they intersect with those at the bottom of the caste ladder with the intention of dismantling or annihilating or breaking that ladder altogether. Uh, And in that sense, this is a radically egalitarian distributed strategy that is very different from the kind of liberal homo-capitalist strategy that I talk about earlier in the book.
0: So I I think I have sort of like 50 more questions for you. It's such a rich text, but we're going to start wrapping up our uh, talk today. Um, And I would like you to explain to me what you mean when you say in your epilogue that you're disorienting Orientalism. I I love that expression. I wanted you to talk about it. I think
1: one of the things that I try to do from the start of the book is to unsettle the kinds of stories we tell about agency. So you remember that I at the outset, I I said that the discussion of the Anti-Homosexuality Act is often conducted in two problematic ways. Either it's evidence of the timeless homophobia of Uganda and Africa, or it's the result of the nefarious activities of U.S.-based evangelical Christians in cahoots with local subordinate agents. And I wanted to tell a more complicated story in which we could do justice to the agency of the Ugandan players in this drama without lapsing into those old Orientalist narratives. So I tell a story of a kind of historical, geographical, materialist story of transactions between different parts of the world that um, help us to see the agency of both the global North and South in producing this contemporary state of affairs, in producing these contemporary queer phobias. This is a disorienting story because I tack back and forth between North and South. And I do this in many chapters, talking about many different issues, whether it's the genesis of the Anti-Homosexuality Act or of politics in the Anglican Communion or of the Advent or the particular... You know uh, features of HIV-AIDS policy as it emerges in the United States in interaction with Uganda. In telling all of these um, stories, it becomes very difficult to locate agency in a precise and static fashion. You know, X is responsible for the state of affairs. Instead, the story tacks back and forth. It I think I, I had this feeling of being a spectator at a tennis match and it induces, I think, a kind of disorientation. It's impossible to tell a static story of agency, even though that's what I purported to try and do at the outset. And this is what I mean by orientation. And I'm playing, I'm using Sarah Ahmed's uh, work a little bit in this section to think about what it means to orient and disorient, and to think also about the productive potentials of disorientation. If we, could, if we could unsettle these simple and singular locations of agency, perhaps we might unsettle the geography of Orientalism itself. Uh, certainly that was my ambition in, in this dimension of the book.
0: Well, I know that you're writing a book about the politics of statues, something that I'm already interested in already for a series of reasons. But um, would you mind telling us a bit about that or any other projects that you might be uh, working on?
1: Sure. So my thinking for this was provoked by, as it was, I think, for many people, by the Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa and um, later in Oxford in the UK. Uh, And I was drawn to think about this in part because I came to the UK on a Rhodes Scholarship. So I... I'm quite deeply implicated in the history, the colonial history of this, this scholarship, which has funded my own education and you know made it possible for me to do the kind of work that I currently do. Um, in the five or six years since the um, eruption of that movement, statues have become a terrain for both the assertion and the contestation of racial and caste supremacy in many different parts of the world. I'm particularly interested in developments in South Africa, but also the U.K., U.S., India, Ghana, uh, in a sense, the footprint of the former British Empire. So I think this is a way of a different, uh, a project that has, has much in common with Out of Time in that, again, I'm interested in the afterlives of British imperialism as they seem to manifest in these struggles around racial and caste hierarchy. Um, This is also a book about the politics of time. Why are we returning to certain moments in history now? What is the relationship between those pasts and our present? And how do statues as artifacts kind of condense these different times into uh, particular determinate locations that then become the focus of rallying, of struggle, of, um, of, of, of battle? In our, in our own time for some of the most vexatious questions that uh, we confront.
0: Well, I can't wait to read that. Rahul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thank you, Isabel. This has been a really great conversation, and I've enjoyed thinking about all your questions.
0: And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Dr. Rahul Rao about his new book, Out of Time, The Queer Politics of Postcoloniality, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.